Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice... I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Kindness as Insight. Working with the body through meditation doesn't have to mean only observing. Sometimes, especially if there is pain or discomfort, just noticing can end up being a continuation of our habitual practice of judging and withholding compassion. In this episode, we will explore how we can practice embodiment and extend kindness to ourselves, especially during meditation, through an embodied loving-kindness practice. Today we are joined by Dan Kyer. Dan is a Westchester-based teacher and writer who is committed to helping others change habitual patterns, find freedom from pain, and create a sane relationship with their body. He is a longtime meditator and trained instructor. After a serious injury left Dan unable to work or take care of himself, he began training in the Alexander Technique. His return to health, as well as his deep experience with the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of pain and illness, inspired him to help others. Dan now teaches an integration of mindfulness and the Alexander Technique as a method of recovering balance and well-being. Here's Dan to take away the discussion. This is kind of a practical talk, but about a pitfall that often occurs for meditators and that I know um, intimately well. And so one of the kind of the, the ground for tonight is sort of um, w- that when we think about our meditation practice or body work, as Kate mentioned, I, I also teach the Alexander Technique. When we think of these or our spiritual practice as a way to kind of gain mastery over ourselves and in the sense of that I, through my own practices, through my skill, through my effort, I'm going to be able to keep away everything, every experience and every feeling that I don't want. We really get into trouble when we start to view our practice as um, kind of the ultimate control the ultimate way to control ourselves. And I'm going to kind of talk about how that might be showing up because there's different ways and um, how to work with it. Because if we really imbue ourselves with the responsibility that we're going to start to control our mind or we're going to kind of cure or fix us through our practice, we're not going to feel pain anymore. We're always going to feel in control. It's just a ton of responsibility, and it's a really kind of an unworkable situation. And it also really disconnects us, ironically, from our body and from our heart. We start to really view the practice as just something that happens in the head. Um, so many of us, like you know, myself, I, I did, many of us probably turn, have first turned to meditation or Buddhism during uh, some difficult period of our lives. Um, stress, big life changes. And so if we turn to our meditation, whether the, for the first time when we first got introduced to it or later in our life during a difficult time, the impulse to change ourselves and to use our meditation practice as a way of um, inoculating ourselves against 
uncertainty or instability or fear or any of the emotions on the whole spectrum of what it means to be a human, if we start turning to it in that way, we can become very humorless. And, and um, so f as an example for me, so I had been meditating for several years already, but I developed this chronic pain condition in my mid-20s where um, I couldn't really use my arms, I couldn't work, couldn't dress myself at times. It was really rough. And so you take an experience like that or you take an experience like anxiety or getting dumped and then you just say, I'm going to sit with that. I'm going to sit with that in meditation. It's not easy. It's really not easy. And sometimes that is kind of the instruction is just sit with it. Whatever you notice, just label it, notice it, just sit with it. But what we often find, or, what, or certainly what I found, is that my expectation was that meditation and Buddhism were going to kind of somehow process, transmute, alchemize, burn away the suffering that I was feeling. That's why I first signed up. <laughs> and, but, and so I think I just want to be clear that tonight I'm kind of separating the long-term effects of a spiritual practice from our short-term view when we meditate. I'm really talking about our attitude for when we're in the moment, when we're working with ourselves in the moment. I do believe that in the long term, amazing sort of life changes and um, growth and development can happen in Buddhism. It has happened with me. But in the moment, that can't really be our attitude, right? In the moment, the attitude can't be... Um, well, if I notice this, if I use my... Um, I'm going to incinerate this anxiety with the raw power of my mindfulness. <laughs> my depression will wither under my own steady awareness. What actually happens often is that we feel kind of, sometimes we feel worse when we sit. We sit with our pain, we sit with our feelings. This is not what I, I remember when I first, first meditation retreat I did, I sort of thought it was going to be this kind of rarefied experience on the cushion. It was a very, it was in a Shambhala retreat center. It was very clean, it was immaculate. There's so much space around. And I was like, this is a war going on inside me. This is not what I expected it to be. And so there's a way in which that what we're feeling often gets intensified when we stop trying to solve it, or when we just stop trying to distract ourselves. And that can be very disheartening. We can feel like we're meditating wrong, or we're living wrong, or doing something wrong, that when I'm sitting down, I actually might be feeling worse in the moment. So that's kind of the, where the place where this kind of, where the practical part of tonight's beginning is right now, is sort of when we're starting to notice sort of intense discomfort, intense feelings. It actually doesn't need to be discomfort. It could be intense positive feelings too, joy, exhilaration, excitement, pain, fear. So when we notice that in our sitting, what do we do? We just so okay, so I'm feeling a lot of fear, so I label that and then come back to my breath. 
right? That's often the instruction is to kind of just notice it. That's kind of the pith instruction is to just notice it. But we are all so conditioned to withhold compassion from ourselves that the noticing can quickly become a very clinical practice. So, okay, so I'm sitting here, pain, fear. This would be like, I have a six-year-old daughter. If she came crying to me because she skinned her knee and I said, hmm, pain, Fear, okay. It wouldn't go over very well. There's a sense of, um, I'm not embracing what's going on, and I'm withholding a sense of heart from the situation. And so the first step is noticing. It is noticing, but often I would say you would want to even kind of go up a step Or when I say, so if you're feeling something intense in your own practice, you're sitting or just walking around the street, naming is a really important kind of step of this, right? So this is often given as a meditation instruction. So if you're feeling, so, if I'm just thinking about what kind of sandwich I want, I don't necessarily need to name that, okay? That's like, I, it's not that charge. There's no real charge to it. You know, it's like idle. But if there's a sense of freight, a uh, sense of charge to what I'm experiencing, it's really helpful to just, the first step is just name it. Okay, I'm feeling a lot of fear, feeling a lot of anger, whatever it is. You know, it's interesting. There's all sorts of myths like Rumpelstiltskin and other myths that when you name the thing, it haunts you less, right? It takes some of the power away of the thing. That was scary. So there's a way in which there's a parallel, I think, when we're feeling things in ourselves that just by naming it, what it does is it helps stop the discursive spinning a bit. I'm giving it a name. Okay. Oh, that's overwhelm. I'm feeling overwhelmed or sadness. So just the first step is just kind of naming it. And that's it. It doesn't need to kind of go into sort of an analysis of it. But as I was saying, we want to kind of, we have, because we have hearts, because we are all caring people and have this capacity for compassion, we want to kind of use our whole body in our meditation, so not have it just be our head that's kind of labeling the things that come into our experience. So there's this practice that I've been doing and teaching for a while now, and it's very simple, and um, I'm just going to kind of introduce it tonight. And um, so, again, this is for sort of when you're experiencing some sort of intense kind of energy, some intense sort of feeling. And the practice is, I call it reintroducing to the heart. So let's say I'm going through some sort of, I'm, I'm really stressed for some meeting I have, right? I have this meeting, I have to present something. I could just be going, okay, thinking, fear, thinking, fear, thinking, fear. But this reintroducing to the heart step is either I actually physically with my hand or not. It's your choice. But the hand, what the hand does is that this is said to be the place where my tree resides, where our loving kindness resides. So there's this sense of just it's actually physically reminding us of another landmark in us other than our head. So the place where loving kindness resides, hand there. And then all you're saying to yourself is, Whatever you're experiencing, so fear, this is my heart, heart, this is fear. You're like making an introduction. It's like at a cocktail party, okay? And so 
like any introduction, you don't meddle with it after you make the introduction, right? So this isn't about solving it. This isn't about like you're undertaking some sort of deep therapeutic kind of um, engagement. All you're really doing is kind of healing the separation between your suffering and your heart so that they don't have to be separate, okay? Because often we will have this idea that we'll be compassionate to ourselves when we deserve it. (laughs) But we never feel like we deserve it. So um, that's what this is about. So again, this is really about working with the separation we feel between our own heart, our own compassion, and suffering. It's a different path than solving. It's a different path than making a to-do list about something or strategizing. By the way, none of those are inherently wrong, but you have other tools as well, and we want to use them. I call it reintroducing as opposed to introducing because generally the things that we are so thrown by and so appalled by that we are actually feeling are completely normal human emotions that have somehow got on a do not admit list. Like, yeah, no shit, I'm scared. Everyone's scared all the time. Or sad, or overwhelmed, or confused, whatever it is, or pain. So there's a way in which, in doing this practice, we're just like, like, this is just part of what it means to be a human being. And it doesn't need to be a big deal. I think that's kind of the important thing. And and it's something that I do over and over again in my life, just in a moment. I could be on the train and just noticing how I'm feeling. I could do with or without my hand. And it's just this sense that the resolution, actually, of the thing I'm feeling, so let's say I'm feeling a lot of pain, it's the resolution isn't so important as the healing the separation. That's the important thing. The suffering is because our heart and our sort of what we're experiencing are disconnected in a moment. So it's just the bringing them together. That's the healing thing. We're going to do this as an as a experiential exercise. Does anyone have any questions about it beforehand? Okay. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> so this is just going to be, I don't know, several minutes. Okay, there's one other thing I just want to say. So I talked about the importance of naming. So this is, I would consider this an embodiment practice um, in that we are in some ways kind of dropping a bit from our mind into our felt experience for the moment, which all of us are experts at. I'm not an embodiment expert, right? We're all, it's our own body. It's our own embodiment. So you don't need to take classes necessarily in it, although maybe it would be helpful for exposure, but this isn't about a kind of expertise or mastery. But one of the things I just want to say is, so as someone who has had chronic pain for a while and who teaches the Alexander Technique, I do find that when we're having sort of an intense experience, if it's uncomfortable, that sometimes the instruction to embody has a real kind of claustrophobic kind of feeling to it. It becomes this sense of like, there is nothing in the world other than me and my pain right now. And um, that's not a very pleasant <laughs> space to be in. There's not a lot of ventilation going on in there. So my sort of practice about it for myself, and I alluded to this in the very beginning, is that 
as human beings and as meditators, spatial awareness is really our friend. So we evolved many, many years ago to live in nature and have a sense of what's above us because it could be a threat or it could be food, to notice what's on the sides of us, same deal, threat, food, friends, foe, even kind of like what's behind us. Like we obviously don't see behind us, but athletes, right, dancers have a sense of kind of like some awareness of their what's behind them. So the interesting thing is that most of our postural muscles are in our back, but we live in a world in which we have a lot of really interesting stuff that happens on something very small in front of us. And so we tend to really kind of lose that back, both in a postural sense, but more importantly, we kind of forget about it. So the advice is that like as you're sitting and as you're walking down the street, so we can just do this for, this can be very informal. So just having a sense of the space above your head, you don't need to see it. You don't need to know details about it. So, I don't know, 12, 15 feet to the ceiling, from the crown of your head to the ceiling. Just have a sense of it. It's kind of like an aperture on a camera. It just, it just opens and it admits. And now having a sense of the space to your left, to your right, so you might have people there. But your awareness can extend past the people. It can even extend past the walls. So all the way from 7th Avenue to 8th Avenue. The sense of space behind you, behind your head and your back. So going again, going past the wall, going past the people behind you, maybe all the way up to uh, the Bronx in your mind. And now in front of you. So again, this is like not working hard. This is a natural human faculty. So just going out, extending space, sense of spatial awareness in front of you, past me. And down below, so we're on the third floor, all the way down to the ground and even down into the, below the subways. So there's a sense of uh, we are inhabiting space. This can be, can be very helpful, and this is something you just can come back to in a moment. I kind of did it in a more formal way here, but... So we have this sense of space, and now <clears throat> maybe um, you might be feeling something that has some kind of intense register to it, or not. But maybe something that's sort of slightly mm, unsettling. We're not talking about major trauma here, nothing life-threatening. This could be like my really annoying landlord or my low back. So notice if you lose the space. It's totally natural to do that. It blinks in and out. Again, just kind of in your mind. You can just open up again that sense of space in all directions. It's your birthright. And just name whatever's arising that has some kind of charge to it. It's also okay to just name the body sensation and to not label it as with an emotional name. You could just say, my throat is kind of tight. My belly is fluttery. And just naming it.
And then you can bring your hand to the center of your chest, this place said to be where loving kindness resides. And you're just reintroducing. So whatever you're experiencing, fear, fluttery belly, this is my heart. Heart, this is blank, whatever it is for you. And then you don't have to work hard, okay? You can enjoy it and then just let it go as you wish. Let's try it one more time. Maybe there's some part of your body that's kind of tight right now or just doesn't feel so great. Could you bring your hand to that part of your body if you feel comfortable? You don't have to. If you feel kind of self-conscious, you don't need to. And same deal here. Just sort of reintroducing the sense of, okay, so... Neck pain. This is my heart. Heart, this is neck pain. So it's not the solver or the improver. It's just friendliness. And you can let that go. So the language isn't really important. The language you you find what works for you. You can use that expression, or the point is for you to kind of develop some way of. Um, in a physical way, in an embodied way, touching into your felt sense of compassion. And I always should say, I always want to say, and I sometimes forget to say, um, my mom always said I really liked depressing movies growing up, and I feel like um, that this, so, so what I'm about to say relates to that. So this is also really great to apply to joy as well, okay? Because we also tend to have problems with that too. And the problem with it is that it's like something makes us so happy for a moment or so light, and then it's immediately like, oh shit, when is this going to go away? How do I keep this here? Um, or we don't want to feel it because we feel we've been taught to not... When I was 20, I worked at restaurants, and the idea was that you always are supposed to look busy. Like, even if you don't have anything else to do, you're supposed to look busy. And I feel like that it's very easy to live your entire life that way. To sort of never be the person who looks like they're just appreciating something, or they have nothing to do. We have such a, a, a mask of kind of busyness. So this is really helpful for stuff that, for me, I have a... My daughter does watching her do something. It's just like it's so easy for it to just kind of like raindrops across a windshield. You know, it's really nice. It's a way of savoring something too. So it savors it and brings it into where a place where we can really feel and appreciate and enjoy. 
So that's really all I wanted to talk about tonight. So I just want to open it up for um, any questions or observations or anything like that. I have two questions. Um, you may have explained this, but the, why is it useful to, to get the sense of space around you? And then second part, when I think about loving kindness, I, I always think of it as being a practice that has some repetition to it. And I'm curious if you feel like that is that applies to this practice as well. Yeah, those are great questions. Um, so the reason why the spatial awareness, actually, I'm, I'm really glad you asked this. So our posture is, our posture is directly related to our, our sense of gravity, and our posture is like a response to gravity. So when astronauts go into space, they lose a couple inches, generally, even if they're exercising. And it's because gravity is not going down through their spine, and so they're not having the, res the lengthening response of the deep postural muscles. So if people want to imp generally, if you tell someone to have good posture, what they do is like, <clears throat> the rack, and they stop breathing. But if we talk about which direction up and down are, and which direction back and to the sides are, that's this indirect way of actually kind of cultivating posture, because that's really how posture works in many ways. It's like our, so it gives us the, it, the direction to point in. So that's part of it, is that it's like a natural way of waking up our posture. And then the other way is sort of, I, I, I was kind of talking about this, that um, I think most of us, our habitual way of, using our attention is like a 50,000 watt flashlight. It's like, and so like FM Alexander, who started the Alexander technique, he really disliked the word, he disliked the actual, the, the practice of concentration in the sense that for him, it meant kids at their school desk going like this, you know, who had kind of like lost touch with their environment they're like using, they're like kind of misusing their body because it's all about accomplishing the task and not about the process as well. So I think what this does for me is it reorients me so that my awareness can be more kind of ventilated and more expansive. And I feel it makes it less a fight or flight sort of experience when difficult things come up. Did I answer your question? Was, thank you, yes. Okay. Um, oh yeah, I mean, tonight, I'm kind, this, is, this is a practice that sort of, I mean, I love loving kindness practice, and I do it a lot, and um, this is really about repetition, but it doesn't necessarily, the thing about this practice is, I feel is it's sort of a use as needed practice, Whereas loving kindness one could do for 10 hours on a retreat. This is sort of as sort of the headwinds start to hit you and as sort of obstacles arise. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a take on like take using the obstacle as the path, you know? And so it, it is about repetition, but not about kind of like I should do this 20 times, you know? 
It's just about continuing to showing up and doing it. And it's something that I developed because I noticed that for me, shamatha was becoming a staring contest with my own pain. It would be like, okay, pain, pain. And there was no sense. It was like two people who are in an argument and neither one is willing to soften towards the other. And so this is actually making a gesture of like softening. I feel like I'm asking you to say something you may have just said a minute ago, but can you say more about the verbal cues towards a, a 360 awareness mm. and how they and how that invokes good posture? Are you asking me how spatial awareness invokes posture, or was it specifically about the verbal, the language I used? Language. Yeah. Well, okay. So the language is really in some ways, uh, very flexible and can sort of be used in a way that really works for people. Mm -hmm. What I tend to do is to have people sort of um, have their spatial awareness be something that is it's greater than their body. And so often by giving them directions, it's very helpful. I did it as a joke once, but it actually is really helpful to be like, okay, as I'm sitting here, all the way to Battery Park, all the way to the Bronx, East River, Hudson River, there's this, doing that, something starts to kind of work a little bit in the brain and in the posture. So the verbal cues can either be just knowing which direction, up, down, left, right, back, forward, or that's one option. Another option is kind of choose your own here. Another option is just having a sense of the space all around you, and that includes the space you can't see. So there, there, and there. Or giving yourself, in some ways, almost like targets or landmarks. Mm -hmm. Subway, sky over the village, the rivers. And just see like what works for you, kind of. Cool. Yeah, Thanks. you're welcome. I think the other thing, this, I'm, re, I'm answering again Mark's question, actually. So the other thing, too, is that the instruction to just notice what you're experiencing. So, like, if you're experiencing, say, chronic pain or some intense pain, because of the ways that our brains have a plasticity, our brain adapts to being in pain. And then, actually, our set pattern becomes, I am Dan of the tight arms and tight neck who has pain. And so... It's actually really helpful, I find, for people with chronic pain, not to ignore, suppress, anything like that, but to really um, not have that be the only picture and the only focus. Otherwise, we're kind of just um, I don't know, it's like, kind of like spinning this wheel of, of habit, you know? That's an analogy that's sometimes used in Buddhism. I realized, as I said, I didn't make that up. Um, anyone else? Any other Questions or observations or anything? Yeah. So, how how does what you just said relate to avoiding the I am Dan of the tight arms? I'm not sure I followed. Are you saying just this practice? Because it seems to me, in a way, you're. I'm not saying that you're you're. Emphasize you're, you're like reinforcing that, but it, but it, it I'm curious how it helps you to associate with more. Let me think about how I want to answer okay. this. So this is sort of born out of my experience, like teaching the Alexander Technique, which is one of the things that realized, and there's been research about, is that 
we don't have the posture we have because we objectively think it's the best posture. We have it because it feels right to us. That's how we have our habits. And so the, um, it's too much energy for our brain to constantly be like, how should I stand? How should I sit? No, I'm like talking to Mark. And so that's on autopilot. And so that's kind of fueled by our, what we feel, our sensory kind of information that's coming in. And if we start to, in addition to the sensory stuff that's coming in, if we also start to use the part of our brain that is responsible for spatial awareness, that's a new kind of input that is less just habitual and it allows Dan of the tight arms to also be Dan whose shoulders can release actually away and Dan whose head actually doesn't have to kind of pull down into my body quite as much. So it's more information in some ways for our body and it's kind of new information rather than like what we're always kind of feeling. So to follow up on that, it also feels to me like in doing it that you're placing yourself or you're placing that or, or who, not you specifically, but, but that pain or or your being is in a bigger, you know, obviously in a much bigger space. Totally. So that, so that you're having to realize that this isn't just all about my arm. This is about, you know, the river, the river, and there's lots going on in, yeah. in that whole space. And so in some ways it feels like you're... you're putting your own pain and sort of there must, you know, like it's not a big jump to think there must be somebody at the river who has pain like me. And I'm not controlling it. That's the other thing. You know, it's yeah. like Suzuki Roshi, the Zen teacher had this saying that the best way to control an angry cow is to give it a large spacious meadow. So it's not to like grab the cow's collar. And so there's a way too in which you're by doing this, yes, Kathy's right, that you're also like opening up to this idea, I'm not the only person who's suffering right now, and I don't mean that in a punitive way of attacking myself, but actually, I'm not alone, right? I'm not alone. It's not my fault. I'm not the only human being who's feeling this way. And you're also not trying to control your experience in the moment. It's very hard to not try and constantly steer your experience in the direction that you want it to go. So I'm sitting here, I'm a little uncomfortable. Okay, let me just kind of tighten, my, tighten this a little bit. Let me do this, let me try harder. You know, so when we kind of are opening up in this way, there's a way in which we're not having to be in control so much. And that's sort of like a really, just a visceral feeling of, I, I, I've experienced this as a kind of like a Buddha nature in a way of like, this is unmanufactured. You know, I don't need to, be responsible. I don't need to fix this. This mantra that I have is that I, I, I don't need to be in charge right now, you know, this moment. The, in my life, yes, I do need to make sure my kids are fed. But in this moment, I don't need to be in charge of it. Yes. Hi. Hi. Hello. Um, I sort of got what you said in um, <clears throat> a very way 
which is that my experience of my own pain and the pain of others around me is that we tend to, or one tends to clench up. Mm. One tend, whether it's mind, body, spirit, connected, or just emphasizing one, we go into a knot. Yeah. And when you were doing that, I realized that it releases that. Yeah. Like because you unravel the knot and you expand, and. Um, I think it's a good reminder that we can expand when, and then the knot goes away. Or it doesn't sometimes, but yeah. you're not attacking the knot. Right, yeah. And so that's I could the really difference. feel it viscerally. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the talk. This is more of a practical sort of question, um, mostly around the interplay between kind of a natural balance in our bodies yeah. and the musculature that we use it's I think it come question originates more from we have our sits bones we start there there's sort of a natural balancing point where mm -hmm. we might be on our sits bones and yet throughout the practice my muscles get tired mm -hmm. my core gets tired mm -hmm. sometimes I'm with a cushion sometimes I'm not with a cushion sometimes I feel like I, it feel the practice feels easier. I can feel my sits bones, and yeah. I've reached a point where it's a little more effortless. Yes. And then there are other times when I feel like I'm trapped in a bit of a slump. Totally. And then I'm on those days. I'm kind of thinking, yeah, not even two weeks ago, I felt like I was past this, and yes. yet, to, and it's so. So I guess my question kind of comes back to the role of effort in sort of maintaining a proper posture. Yeah. Um, what is the role? The, it, it requires some effort, mm -hmm. and yet it shouldn't require so much yeah. because we should be naturally balancing. So sure. I wondered if you could just expand on that, the role of effort. It's a great question. Um, it's really, it's very parallel to our own meditation practice, and I would really encourage you to sort of have your, the contemplation around this be, what is the role of effort in my practice, period? Um, because there is a role for effort, but there's definitely, like Suzuki Roshi, who I was talking about before, he places a lot of importance in his writings on Zen in terms of right effort and wrong effort. So he interestingly talks about, um, he says in Zen, the best, attitude, is the best effort is an effort towards non-achievement mm -hmm. as opposed to an effort towards achievement. And so what I'd say with posture is that having this sense of direction of which way up, down, left, right, that's kind of non, I'd say that's more on the non-achievement end of the spectrum than chest back, shoulder, you know, chest up, shoulders back, that kind of thing. That's really about, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hold, I'm trying to enter something and I'm going to hold it. It would be like, I, it'd be like, I notice I have a clear mind and I'm going to hold on to it. You know, um, so, yeah, so I, the way that I really think about it is, is for one, is it's compl I just want to really identify that that's completely normal, that things change, and they do change throughout a posture. They change from week to week. They change from five minutes ago till now. And um, the way that I really work with it is, yeah, like I'm... It's, you know, if I notice that I'm like really kind of slumping back or really kind of going forward, I can, I make an adjustment 
but I'm present during the adjustment. And I notice that if I have this attitude of like, okay, chest back, boop, back to meditating. Because it's sort of like, part of the rift actually is that like posture is something that happens at the beginning and then we meditate. Mm-hmm. 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 That it kind of tends to point towards an attitude of seeing our body as like, uh, I don't know, it's just the, it's not the real deal. The meditation is actually something that happens up here. That's what, so if we think in more, less about posture and more about kind of like our embodiment, then it's something that we can kind of be with during the whole sit. So you're here, your breath is happening. You know, breath, your body's breathing. And so if I make an adjustment because I notice, oh, I'm really leaning back, as I come forward, I might have a sense of space above. But I'm also, it's, again, it's not like a check mark. It's like I'm present during the change and after the change. And then just the last thing I want to say, too, is... Um, I mean, it's funny, I'm actually, I'm writing this article right now called, Am I Allowed to Move While Meditating? And, because it's the number one question I get asked uh, is like, can I move? People have pain. And just that, just as one of the central teachings of Buddhism is, we don't exist as we think we exist, you're neither a better meditator if you don't, you're not a better meditator if you don't move, and you're not a worse meditator if you move that all of these are our stories about ourselves. So if you notice, like, well, last week I was freaking, like, I don't know, you know, I was so upright. It's like, and then I feel like, oh, God, what a shithead. I didn't do my Pilates or whatever. You know, it's like all of that is story, you know? And so you just, you drop, that's not important. That's, that's in some ways not real. What's real is just what you're working with. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for the question. It was great. Is this something you can kind of do on the spot? Is there like a real simple, quickie? What? Which way part, which, to, which to part of it do you mean? The reintroducing. Yeah, totally. You can totally do it really simple. So, like anything, practicing it formally a little bit helps make the informal easier. Um, but yeah, I do it all the time, walking on the street, on the way here, and so it's just. You name what you're feeling, and then you just have a sense of your own heart, and that and that they're they're happening in the same body, in the same being. That's it. And then it's like, and you don't need to fix, change, resolve it. Just doing that, yeah. And do it for good stuff too. Do it for like, oh, the sunset. Do it, you know, that kind of thing too. How go? Yeah. So I'm wondering if you have any advice. I feel like on the other end of the spectrum, I've been making almost, I can say, zero effort in terms of sitting because I've been having a lot of chronic you know, lower back and neck, yeah. but also because I sit and write a lot. Yes. And I feel like I already have done a lot of damage you know, hmm. to worsening it. So, and I just like, feel like I have this resistance. Obviously, I, resistance yeah. in terms of like, to sit, you know, to sit down, even, I know it's probably like excuse or so, but, but it's, it is. Because you're in chronic pain, that sounds like a reasonable resistance. And, and, and I'm like trying to tell myself, like when I lie down, like sometimes I do yoga, nidra, stuff like that. You know, I try to do those things to bring myself to be kind of mindful of whatever I'm thinking, even though it's like kind of going all directions. But is there like a, 
maybe some sort of compromise, like in terms of like if really you just feel like you can't sit right now or because I know I, I do need to practice more. But at the same time, I do feel like it's my body's just, or maybe my mind, it's just like kind of fighting against it. Yeah, because you know it's painful. Is that why you, you know I that you're going to be feeling more compressed, pain? You know? yeah. And then I already feel like I'm sitting so much already. Mm, yeah, doing yeah. whatever yeah. I have to do. It's a good question. I would say, for one, really start to practice as soon as you start having this conversation in your head. Like, when you start to be like, should I practice? I don't know. I'm in pain. That's like, right there is like the juice. That's like the juice of your practice of like, I don't know what to do right now. Like, I'm feeling pain. I think meditation would be good for me. But I don't want to... All of that like stuff you're describing, like in all the directions, in that moment is like a lot of energy a lot of insight and heart does that make sense when i say that but is sitting down the only way no no i'm yeah. gonna yeah gonna get to that but just in the beginning just like um in the pre-decision place really practice with that for just a couple seconds in the sense of like um because we we want to make a decision both for very laudable reasons because you want to know how to do my daily practice and we also want to make a decision because it's very uncomfortable to not know what to do Mm-hmm. So that's one and then no you definitely don't sitting I've, de- I've done a lot of my meditating lying down over the years um, my I'm just quick I'm going to quickly just kind of show like a, a a good sort of lying down um, practices that so you, let's say you're on a carpet or something that's not, not the bed. bed don't do your bed that's my only hard firm rule no you can do your if you have trouble getting down, getting up and down, but in general, something relatively firm, like carpet, yoga mat, as as opposed to a couch, that actually allows your body to relax more. So because it gives more support to your kind of skeletal structure, so your muscles can actually release a little bit. Yes, thank you. So so you're laying down here, and you put something under your head, like something firm. Okay, so not a really squishy pillow. You could do a couple paperback books. You could do, this is pretty firm. And so, <clears throat> do that, and then if your legs are comfortable like this, that's great, feet on the floor. Also, another option is you get a chair or you, you, you put your legs on a couch or bed like this, especially that might be good for you if you have low back pain, is doing putting your legs up, you know, so they're supported right here. That really allows your hips and your low back to kind of release. So you can totally do your practice kind of lying down like that. It's better, obviously, to do that than not, <laughs> not practice at all. You know, and again, it's a similar kind of answer to what I was talking to him about, which is that your own identity of who you are or think you are based on that choice is kind of not that real. I'm processing. Yeah, what's, in, what's important is really just practicing. Not so much what you, the form it is. And then the other thing I would say is like your contemplation about this is just asking yourself, why am I practicing? You should maybe journal a little bit about this. Like, because I, I could be totally wrong here, but it, it sounds like maybe somewhere within your question is this idea that I would be, I should practice, which we, we all should practice. 
But sometimes that can be someone else's voice in our head. That like, I would be a better person if I practice. I'm so weak and undisciplined and I'm lazy and me not practicing is confirming this. So you really like kind of having a contemplation and maybe some journaling about why am I practicing? What's my intention? What do I want from this? And just like really let yourself go with it. And that will also inform your decisions too. Great. So um, I just want to close by um, just having us all just take a moment to feel into our bodies. Doesn't need to be a big deal. And knowing that space is part of our awareness as well. The space overhead, to the sides, behind and underneath, and then also in front. Sense of no limits. We don't have to have any limits on that. And that whatever we're feeling, we could just have the sense that our heart could share the same space with whatever we're feeling. It's part of the same being. And we don't need to do anything with that. Thank you.